From the right policies to the right politics, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions helps bring durable climate solutions to life from a right-of-center perspective. Learn more about Cress's mission and programs, including the Clean Energy Boot Camp for candidates and elected officials at www.cressenergy.com. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Plugged In Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, with my co-host, Josh Siegel, and we are very excited today to be returning to the Upper Chamber. We started the podcast with uh, some Senate interviews, then we had a great experience with our friends in the House, uh, a great legendary economist, Daniel Juergen, but now we are back in the United States Senate and are so honored today uh, to have as our guest, uh, Senator Cassidy of Louisiana, someone I have worked with very closely over the years, who is a real leader in the chamber. Senator, thank you for joining the Plugged In podcast. Neil, Josh, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Senator, wanted to start with, this is, this is Josh, starting with, with some of the you know, most most recent news on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I know you were, as we've discussed before, you were you know very influential in, in some of these climate resilience measures. You should, you know, you were there for the signing ceremony. You know, why why was it important you be there? And uh, it, you know, and, and what and what why was this a significant accomplishment in your mind, especially on the issues that we care about? Yeah. So we have not made an investment in infrastructure in this country of this magnitude for decades. And we've probably not made it over such the diversity of the issues that we're addressing. And it isn't just the infrastructure that we're used to as thinking of infrastructure, roads and bridges. It is the infrastructure of the future, including, for example, the um, the, the information highway, which is the internet. Um, I'll also point out when it comes to energy, that we have kind of a juxtaposition, a confluence, whatever you want to say, of multiple issues that are coming together. We imagine that we're going to have a lower carbon intensity future. It is going to take infrastructure by which we continue to provide the energy, but allow to mitigate the carbon intensity. This bill also provides for that. I can keep going, uh, but I suspect you want me to keep my answers brief. But aside from record investment, taking care of backlogs, as well as imagining what we need to do to build for 2050, not just 2025, this bill does a lot. Senator, this is, uh, you know, well, when we interview senators, we adhere to Senate rules. So there's no one minutes here. Uh, we will not file cloture on you, so you can uh, uh, answer at length. Um, when you're going to go home to, uh, to Louisiana uh, next week, you know, big energy producing state, can you talk a little bit about um, how the energy provisions in the BIF will, uh, will specifically impact and benefit Louisianans? Absolutely. So the issue with fossil fuel, as our foreign markets go to demanding lower carbon intensity products, but they still want those products, to remain competitive, you have to find out a way to continue to use abundant, affordable, natural gas, but to mitigate the carbon intensity so that we both keep the jobs producing, we both keep the affordability of plentiful natural gas, but we mitigate carbon intensity to gain access to future overseas markets. Now, there's a whole 
kind of comes together right there. The bipartisan infrastructure bill achieves that. It includes a scale act uh, bill that I wrote with Chris Coons, $6 billion in grants and low interest loans that will allow the, uh, uh, that will enable pipelines to be built in order to take carbon from wherever it is produced and to either use it in another product line or to sequester it. There's hydrogen hubs uh, and areas where you could make what is called blue hydrogen. Your listeners know this, but you take natural gas, you strip the hydrogen, you make hydrogen molecule for, say, transportation, but then you sequester or use the carbon elsewhere. Um, there's money, $8 billion or so for that. Now, uh, one, you know, we've been speaking in the abstract, let's put a point on it. Imagine that you could have containers of hydrogen used as propulsion fuel that you would place upon a, a, bar, a push boat pushing barges up and down the Mississippi River. It could go to one port, be reloaded with another canister, uh, go to another port, say from uh, New Orleans to Memphis, be reloaded, be loaded with another canister, and you've gotten a way, you've, you've, you've achieved a way of a low carbon intensity uh, fuel, still using our natural gas, but not releasing the carbon to the atmosphere, and nonetheless powering inland marine boats up and down our inland marine system. So that's one example. We have many, or several examples. We have many others. We just think it's a good bill for that future. So in terms of that, uh, Senator, you know, sounds like there's a lot for Louisiana in this bill. Uh, your delegation colleague, a friend of both of ours, uh, Congressman Scalise, he whipped against it in the House. Is that sending a confusing message to the folks in Louisiana who stand to benefit from this? You know, all I can say is the people in Louisiana seem pretty excited. When you tell folks that we're going to have $65 billion to ensure that all Americans have access to affordable high-speed Internet, they're pretty excited. And when you say that there is um, uh, $800 million for the Mississippi River and tributary system, that may not see, say Louisiana, but because the MRT goes through Louisiana, uh, they understand Louisiana will benefit. How about By the, the way, not just, measures. Not I, just uh, Louisiana, Josh, let me just say this. Yeah, yeah. Not just Louisiana, but also farmers in the upper Midwest who ship their goods through the Mississippi River to international markets. Um, and so there's a lot of benefit here. And I don't want to make it sound like it was a focused upon Louisiana. But if you benefit the export of goods through the lower Mississippi, you lower the cost of transportation for farmers in Missouri and Iowa. That makes our farm products more affordable and competitive on world markets. Yeah, I mean, uh, the resilience measures, is that something that people, you know, can feel and, and touch given, you know, sea level rise is a problem in Louisiana and, and your state is obviously very interesting and in that it's still a big oil and gas producer, you know, offshore, or do you kind of ha find yourself having to explain what you're doing there? Because again, this is record people get it. resilience. Yeah. We've been, so the provision, one of the provisions you speak to is several billion dollars for coastal restoration prioritizing states recently hit by natural disasters. Uh, I think it says officially six in the last six years. In the case of Louisiana, you could say the last six months. Uh, and so the, some a significant portion of that several billion dollars is going to help rebuild coastline in Louisiana. Our state has lost more coastline than any other state. We've lost as much landmass as the entire state of Delaware. And the impact on the rest of the nation is that now that storms are increasing in frequency and intensity, 
um, the federal taxpayer is helping to rebuild communities that would be protected if we're actually putting money into coastal restoration. So there's a benefit for our state. There's a benefit for the federal taxpayers. Folks back home get that. Understood. And, and one thing on, so I know you, you've expressed before, uh, just to get a little bit into, you know, where we're go going now with, with, or at least where the Democrats are with reconciliation and their larger, uh, you know, climate and social spending bill. You know, you, you've, you've said you're, you know, be wary of kind of double dipping and that you don't think that should happen. But on the other side, I mean, you're, you're here, you know, the Democrats will say, look, you know, the infrastructure bipartisan bill did do stuff on, on EV charging, for example, but hey, you know, that, that's not worth much if it's still too expensive for people to buy these cars. So that's why we need tax credits and reconciliation or in the case of transmission, you know, look, there's good stuff in the bipartisan bill. But hey, if we add a you know production tax credit or you know other incentives on siting, that only enhances it. You know, same thing. I could go down the list. Carbon capture. There's 45 Q enhancements and reconciliation. I mean, you know, couldn't you say these are almost I mean, I've heard the administration say yin, yin and yang. I mean, you know, that these two could work in tandem rather than be at, you know, at, you know, at odds with each other? Well, I can critique almost every one of those examples you just gave. Okay. Um, the EV tax car credit disproportionately flowing to upper income Americans paid for disproportionately by the taxes of lower income Americans with an extra $4,500 if you buy a electric vehicle produced by a union plant. And Joe Manchin doesn't like that, apparently. Well, I can tell you that is not about expanding the use of the purchase of electric vehicles. It is about rewarding uh, labor unions. And if you have lower income Americans who typically drive their cars for 15 years buying used ones when they renew, subsidizing uh, credits for upper income Americans, um, what does that mean? I had a friend I got into his $80,000 Tesla. He could easily afford it, but he got a significant amount of credit. He looked at me, he goes, you know, I felt guilty about those credits, but I took them. Uh, so we're giving credits for $80,000 yeah. vehicles. Well, how I about, on, how about on like carbon social capture? injustice? Yeah, yeah. How about on carbon capture? I mean, you've been wanting to do more on 45Q, right? I mean, this would really, I mean, you're talking about CO2 pipelines. This would really make, I've talked to you know, Calpine, a big natural gas generator that says this could really help us do CCS on, on gas. So I would have to go back and look at the current iteration. At one point, it would not allow the carbon to be given credit for 45 QS if it was used in enhanced oil recovery. Yeah. Now, the way to make the business model work is to stack it upon other things that can generate income. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the oil which is obtained by enhanced oil recovery, it has a lower carbon intensity because you're storing CO2 in which to um, extract it from the ground than oil, which is obtained without enhanced oil recovery. Uh, I would regard, I would offer back, Josh, that, that the way this is constructed is more about satisfying left-wing anti-fossil fuel kind of, uh, we hate you, whether or not it's in, it makes, makes good sense or not to hate you, um, satisfying that impulse, as opposed to actually helping to create a business model in which there's more EOR. Maybe by brute strength, you just throw enough at it, um, but that's not really a market-oriented uh, mechanism. Speaking of the market center, you guys had a hearing in ENR looking at energy prices. I think uh, folks in Kentucky, folks in Louisiana are, are seeing it and feeling it in their pocketbooks, uh, the impacts of inflation. 
Uh, now the administration is proposing pumping another $1.75 trillion into the economy. They claim it's going to be paid for. Uh, I noticed they're already starting to work the refs and say that CBO maybe doesn't necessarily have the expertise to fully <laughs> appreciate how this is all going to be paid for. Uh, I, I mean, what do folks at home tell you? Are, are they legitimately worried about uh, uh, the, the impacts of inflation? Is this something that's resonating? Absolutely. When the New York Times is publishing articles, which typically the New York Times is going to shield a Democratic administration from too much criticism, when they are publishing articles about inflation, and the first paragraph is along the lines of um, the first paragraph is along the lines of uh, why um, there is inflation. The first paragraph speaks about the spending policies of the Biden administration. Now they go on to say that it's more complicated than that, but that um, but that nonetheless they are saying that that among the prime factors is how much money they have pumped in, and I can tell you. If they are trying to say that it's paid for, as Biden said, it's not going to cost anything. I don't know how you say that. And now they're saying, oh, well, the CBO just doesn't know how to score things. <laughs> I mean, you just got to laugh. It is so transparent a way to uh, trick the American people into thinking, one, it's not going to cause inflation. By the way, I see now that uh, um, Larry Summers is, is, is says it's ready to, it's time to say that this inflation is not transitory, it is here to stay. Yeah. That is being related to the amount of spending that they're doing, that what they're doing is not going to be paid for, except by sleight of hand and trickery, but an honest accounting of it would show that it's not paid for, it's going to drive up our debt. I could keep going. Uh, the people back home are frustrated by this by this dishonesty by this administration. Yeah, and in the hearing just referenced, you know, I saw a number of Democrats, maybe they, you know, view these high prices as a political vulnerability given, you know, their larger climate agenda um, and just kind of what these high prices, you know, people are feeling these um, every day. But like what, uh, yeah, I mean, what do you make of some of these proposals? Some Democrats are saying ban, you know, reimpose the crude oil export ban, uh, you know, stop, exporting LNG, you know, be more, you know, apply more scrutiny to that. What did you think? What do you think of some of those ideas? I, the SPRO, uh, releasing crude through the SPRO. Josh, it is a train wreck of policy ideas coming from an administration, which is idea bankrupt. They're acting on first degree effects on multiple areas, not realizing when they do that, not considering how it's affecting other areas. Um, we end up with the situation we are now uh, with um uh, inflation, maybe stagflation on its way, and high energy prices while we're begging OPEC to increase production. Let me put a kind of a point or color on all this. They've been doing their best, the left has, to strangle production by not permitting, by not leasing, by withdrawing permits. Um, you name it, they've been doing their best to decrease production of oil and natural gas in North America. Now, now that we have skyrocketing fuel prices, I think it's up from $1.75 to $3.15 year over year, a gallon of gasoline in Louisiana. Think about that for a working family having to commute to work. Now that we are uh, in this situation and they feel electorally vulnerable, they're asking OPEC to increase production. 
and they also want to halt exports. Now, halting exports, well, we don't, have the same I don't know if they want to do that. They haven't done that. I mean, if you're talking about no, that. no, no. But this is the conversation on the left. Okay. Should we halt exports? Okay. Okay. And there is a recent letter that I can provide from you. I think Schumer sent, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is Schumer. Yep. I know you're talking that about. asked to halt exports. Right. Now that has the effect of increasing production, right? Increasing supply. They want to open up the strategic petroleum reserve. It has the effect, if you will, of increased production. Now, that's because they made bad decisions regarding, regarding strangling the production we would have ordinarily had. Uh, if we had gone forward with our production, we would have it online now. We would be able to be taking whatever resource that they have prevented from being available, and that would be working to mitigate yeah. the high prices we now have. Now, now, most most experts I speak with, I mean, and what I saw in the hearing is right. I mean, the high prices right now are, are more being driven by you know just global markets and the, this resurgence of demand after the pandemic. I mean, I get I get your larger point on kind of uncertainty on leasing um, and all that, but it does seem like our, I mean, our production is the IEA had a report to, uh, you know come out recently a monthly oil market report that we're seeing Gulf production come back, you know, after Hurricane Ida. Uh, you know, the, this administration is it will have done by the time this posts a very, uh, you know, significant lease sale uh, in the Gulf, obviously prompted by a uh, court ruling that found their uh, leasing pause to be illegal. But I mean, are you starting to see signs that production is is kind of, you know, meeting the demand and that might be the answer here to offset the higher prices? Some of the testimony we heard suggested that production will ramp up. I forget what the lag time was, maybe six months or so, uh, that we will get there. But keep in mind what you just said. The only reason they're doing a lease sale is because a federal judge ordered them to do so. And if you look in kind of the details of what they're doing, they're not doing all they could do. They're doing the bare minimum they need to do in order to comply with the federal judge. We already know they withdrew, they withdrew permission to build the Keystone XL pipeline, which granted would not be pumping crude yet, yeah. But that interjected uncertainty into the investment market. And one thing these experts said is that, the, as, is that there's been a decrease in investment in production and exploration. That is in one part due to market circumstances, another part due to uncertainty injected by this administration, uh, by the, the two things we just discussed. So um, uh, reality is you can't have it both ways. You can't say you're going to try and decrease oil and gas production in the United States and then complain when you don't have enough oil and gas. Um, and by the way, the other thing I pointed out in the hearing was that all this kind of let's decrease oil and gas was somehow going to have lead to fewer global greenhouse gas emissions. The, the, the opposite has occurred because of the high price of natural gas elsewhere. They're now burning more coal. Are they burning more Russian natural gas, which has a greater carbon intensity in production than does U.S. natural gas? So their stated goal of decreasing global greenhouse gas emissions will be um, uh, will not be met. In fact, it will go in the wrong direction. And Senator, when I when I was at FERC, we played a role uh, working uh, with you and others uh, to approve a number of applications for liquefied natural gas export facilities, uh, some of which are in Louisiana and have the potential to create jobs uh, in the region to uh, uh, lead to that economic benefit, to offer our allies a alternative to Russian gas and to displace more carbon intense sources of fuel overseas. 
But with surging natural gas prices, we now have some folks uh, clamoring for FERC and DOE to to kind of curb and pull back on LNG exports. Uh, do you have a sense of what the impact would be in Louisiana and elsewhere if they were to take that step? Well, of course, it would ultimately lead to decreased supply of natural gas because you would have, um, yes, it would, it would in the short term lower prices because there would be uh, more surplus retained on our shores. But then you have less incentive for more wells to be drilled, which means that there would be less upstream production. The other thing it would do, you know, this is, again, the point I made in committee, this is a counterpoint, confluence, nexus of, of energy production, energy security, with decreasing global greenhouse gas emissions and national security. Now, and, and recall what I said earlier, how the Biden administration has a lot of first degree thinking right now. Oh, let's do this and say this and everybody think we're really great. Uh, but they don't think about how it all relates. They wanted to come back. America's back. We're going to just stick by our allies. We're going to be faithful. We're not going to break treaties or trade relations just to break them as our predecessor allegedly did. But now that countries have become dependent upon U.S. natural gas, both for their energy security and to replace coal with our gas to lower global greenhouse gas emissions, um, and in part to decrease the market share of Russian gas, our Iranian gas, good for our national security, we're going to start keeping it. We're going to pull it back. Not only decreasing future U.S. production because of lower prices, but also proving that we are untrustworthy as a trade partner or as a national security ally. And by the way, many of them will go back to using coal mm-hmm. and worsening, worsening global greenhouse gas emissions. Hey, while, while I'm, not sure, I'm not sure you could have designed a worse set of policy decisions. Just while we're on LNG, guys, on, 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 uh, on methane, I mean, how, how important is that? You talk a lot about you know, economic competitiveness as being you know, a reason uh, why you're in, interested in the climate uh, you know, arena. Uh, you know, the EU, obviously, is, is looking at some por- you know, potential import restrictions with their CBAM proposal. I mean, how, how important, uh, do you, how big of a problem is methane in your eyes? How, how, how urgent is that as far as t- getting methane leaks under control, uh, as far as making that economic competitive uh, advantage from the U.S., you know, real and sustaining? So specifically, Josh, you're speaking of fugitive methane, that which is leaked out from the wellhead or from the pipeline. Right. right. Yeah. So our companies will be judged on the life cycle of carbon emissions. And so if they, um, if there is more at the wellhead, more leakage to the wellhead in the pipeline, uh, they are going to be uh, penalized. I will say that there is an LNG export facility in Louisiana, which is its business model is to show that they have net carbon neutrality in every bit of natural gas they deliver worldwide. And so there is going to be a market force pushing for um, net carbon neutrality in the shipment of liquefied natural gas. Uh, now, obviously, methane is a, um, a potent uh, uh, contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And so there is a good environmental reason to be doing it as well. So I go back to what I said earlier. Oftentimes, these issues have a nexus, which if you address one, you actually do one, you actually do something for the other. In this side, you can say either we're going to do it for limiting greenhouse gas emissions or we're going to do it to expand the market share of certain companies. Either way works together for the good.
Hey, hey, Senator, I, I just I did want to ask uh, as we close here, uh, I'm plugged in about, you know, about COP26, the big UN climate conference that that wrapped up here. You know, I know Senator Mur- Lisa Murkowski was there on the Republican side. You know, she was kind of saying, hey, I wish more Republicans were here with me, um, you know, but I, I know I'm sure you, you had reasons not not to be there. But I'm wondering what I mean, just did you feel like, you know, it was a positive outcome? I mean, you know, a lot the UN and other IEA have said, look, we've closed, you know, there was with pledges, a closing of the gap to, you know, maybe reach temperature goals uh, that were set in the Paris Agreement. Uh, you know, there was the U.S.-China agreement. Uh, there were moves on uh, on overseas uh, fossil fuel finance, limiting um, you know government funding to that. I'm sure you weren't a fan of that one, but I mean, did you overall, you know, were you were you, were, were you uh, satisfied? Did you like what came out of there um, overall? You know, from the global emissions perspective. You hate to agree with Greta Thunberg. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Daniel Jurgen in his conversation with you pointed out they specifically did not invite the big oil companies who have the engineering muscle to actually limit emissions. And when you speak of limiting financing for overseas fossil fuel facilities, do we really think the Chinese won't be building primitive coal-fired plants in third world countries? Oh, they said they won't. They pledge not to anymore. Yeah, Yeah, right. Okay. Um, Yeah, Josh. Uh, Yeah. They're also going to be net carbon neutral by 2030, right? Yeah, Josh. In all seriousness, yeah, you're laughing. I'm laughing. The people listening to this are laughing. No one believes it. So if you walk away saying, whoa, we got the Chinese to cooperate. Um, And I guess the uh, India will by 2070. (laughs) Um, It's a little hard to keep a straight face. On the other hand, some of the stuff that has been shown to work, which is the substitution of natural gas for coal uh, to, in, to, if you will, to deliver the BTU, but one half the carbon intensity. We should be celebrating that. Everybody's trying to coast over it, trying not to acknowledge that that's really the reason that we've made so much progress in the United States. Um, I think if we had a little bit more dose of realism, I would have felt a little bit better about the conference. Cool. All right, Senator Cassidy, thanks, thanks for joining us on the Plugged In podcast. Uh, on behalf of Neil and me, thanks, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hey, listeners, Josh Siegel here. Just want to thank you all for listening. I'm sure many of you have seen that I am moving to Politico from the Examiner to cover energy and climate. Very bittersweet for me. And that, of course, means the Plugged In podcast. This will be our last episode for the time being. Neil and I are thinking about how to, how to bring it back, potentially bringing it back. We're, we're not sure what that might look like, but we just, you know, we really want to thank you for giving us a shot here. Totally new uh, experience for both of us, but it's, it's been a lot of fun and we're happy to know that it's been, it's been well received. And we also want to thank our, our seller producer, Steph Thomas, for, uh, for really making, being the engine behind the, uh, this podcast as well. And uh, we, we look forward to, to, to being in touch. Thanks. From the right policies to the right politics, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions helps bring durable climate solutions to life from a right-of-center perspective. Learn more about Cress's mission and programs, including the Clean Energy Boot Camp for candidates and elected officials at www.cressenergy.com.